Have you ever wanted to be bold, to be brave, speak up, take a new path in life, but you wish you had someone to walk beside you? This is A Voice of Her Own, a podcast about our journey to agency, authority, and action. Each week, you'll get inspiration, actionable practices, and support from me and from brave women of all kinds, walking their own path and telling their own stories. I'm Diva. I'm a trauma-informed coach and a doctoral student in psychology. So I know a few things about seeking an authentic life, but I'm still learning too. So join me as we support, encourage, and inspire each other. This is a podcast about showing up. This is a voice of her own. Well, hello. Welcome to another episode of A Voice of Her Own. I'm your host, Diva Davison. And this week, I talked to the bold and brave Savannah McCarty. Savannah is a young woman who not only founded a very successful nonprofit in her early 20s, she also left that nonprofit and grew out of her dream to move to a rugged ranch in Montana where she founded SNS Stables Bozeman, which is an equine center for mental health. And Savannah is someone who offers coaching and support for mental health professionals, for foster youth, as well as internships and training for horse trainers. And she also has begun offering plant medicine warrior weekends. So there's a lot of different journeys that Savannah has taken in her very uh, young life. She's just now, I think, 34, yet she has so many different elements of what we talk about here on this podcast. She's very bold. She's very direct. She's brave. She is somebody who, in my mind, really understands the power of lived experience. And she is unapologetic about who she is. She is somebody who you'll see really is able to articulate what her own authentic responses are to situations. And she uses those authentic responses to choose the direction that she moves next. There's a lot to admire about her story. There's a lot of stories to unpack in this conversation. One is that Savannah is currently recovering from a traumatic brain injury and near-death experience that happened six months ago. And as she has charted her mental health journey, which started back when she was still the executive director and founder of a nonprofit in California, she's dealt with debilitating depression, anxiety, and now she's dealing with recovery from a TBI and everything that goes along with that while still working and managing a ranch of 30 horses in one of the coldest places in Montana. And her recovery from that TBI and her journey in 
healing from her mental health issues has taken her into alternative modalities. And she's very willing to speak out about that and to speak about her experiences. She also is very transparent about the things she's gone through. And in the last year, she also had the experience of a very devastating miscarriage. And so when I talked to her, honestly, I could have talked to her for hours because there's so much to unpack in these experiences. I think that you'll walk away from this conversation with A, a lot of admiration, but B, a real sense of, oh, okay, here's a model for what it means to trust your own experience and to act from that place. And I really appreciate her. And I think that there will be more conversations with her in the future. So without further ado, the brave, the bold, Savannah McCarty. So, hey, Savannah, I'm so happy that you are here with me this morning. Thank you for coming to A Voice of Her Own. Thank you for having me. I am excited to talk to you because you, for me, embody so many of the attributes of this, the the things that I like to explore on this podcast. Um, I talk about agency, the way a woman chooses how to move in the world, um, authority, you know, how it is that we decide what it is that we are actually knowledgeable about and can share with others and can speak on. And then action, the way that we choose to implement things and change things that we see need to be changed. And I think you do all of those. And I just am excited to get into it. Um, One thing that I usually ask people before they give their bio is I ask them, what is alive for you right now? What is exciting to you right now? Because I feel like that's more important than like, well, what do you do? It's like, oh, where, where are you at? What feels exciting right now? Oh, that's a great question. I think what is alive for me right now um, is experiencing um, human emotion and feeling again uh, with recovering six months out from a traumatic brain injury and surgery yeah, and getting back in touch with what makes our human experience so beautiful, which is love and grief. Yeah. I, I, I want to get into your, your accident because it's such a big part of what's happening for you. But I want to validate that and say that one of the things that I've noticed, I've been following your Instagram account for quite a long time. Um, we've known each other, obviously, for years. And I've noticed recently that the depth of humanity in your posts has increased. Like, I feel that was something I was thinking about last night when I was prepping for this. Like, oh, Savannah is really getting in touch with her own sense of humanity in dealing with all of this. Yeah, I I think that going through death in all aspects of it and having half of your mind go on pause for quite a bit of time, it kind of forces you to look at life through a different lens and look at the human experience in a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's it's such a big thing. Let's let's back up for a second. So for people who have not met you or don't know you through your Instagram or through the work that you do, can you give me a, a short bio about who you are, what you do and and what you see right now as your purpose in the world? Mm. 
Let's see. I've been a social worker for the last 10 years. I started a therapeutic nonprofit ranch for foster and adopted youth in Humboldt County in Northern California when I was 25. It's actually the 10 year anniversary this year. It was in 2013. Mm. Um, I quickly grew out of, and I don't know how to put words to that, but I grew out of that life dream two years ago in 2021 and made the decision to resign from the executive director position at that nonprofit um, because it no longer needed me. It's doing very well. It will hopefully go on for decades and decades, just how nonprofits are supposed to be set up to thrive without the founder and serve the community. And so I made the move to Montana in that decision because I have always felt that Montana was my home, was my community. Um, California has been my place of work. And I needed a, a place to start planting roots for just me. Yeah. Um, it's it's yeah. funny. I was telling somebody the other day that I was having the opportunity to do this podcast with you. And I, and I, I know that you know that I used to live in Montana also. I went to school mm -hmm. there. And, and I told them, I said, it's an epic place for epic people. And the strong you. people live here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then that led to another business, uh, the startup of another business, which is a ranch here in Bozeman. It's an equine center for mental health. But with that, it's a place for community. It's where um, people can board their horses. We do horse training. My interns get their training and their experience living on the ranch with me. Um, there's a lot happening at this facility that couldn't have happened at my prior ranch for children that I'm so excited to see blossom in the next few years and, and see all the good things that happen here. And, and this is SNS stables, right? S &S? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And do you want to just briefly mention what that SNS stands for? Uh, SNS stables stands for Shiza and Savannah stables. And Shiza was my, you know, heart horse, my lifelong horse that I had had since I was six years old. She was the horse that I started the nonprofit in California with at, how old was she then? 25, 24. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. And she, she inspired my life's work of healing through horses since a young age. I couldn't bring her to Montana because I don't think she would have made the trip and I didn't want to put her through a Montana winter mm -hmm. and she passed away three months after I left mm -hmm. and yeah. I wanted to, her me naming this ranch after her was me bringing a piece of her with me on this journey since it was the only journey that she hasn't been on with me physically yeah yeah I feel like there's something about I don't know how to put this exactly, mm -hmm. but there's a feeling of ancestor with her. Like she is yep. almost like your sister. Like it's almost like she's your aunt. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I'm, I want to also talk about, I feel like your journey is there's like a, a, an interesting interweaving. So you had the nonprofit journey and 
you just briefly touched on the horse journey. Can you tell me how your mental health journey and your horse journey came about together and what has happened for you over the last few years and that? Let's see. I have always had horses to lean on to be my strength through my time as a ward of the state of California, grieving the loss of my mother from a very young age, moving home to home. Horses were always my constant in my life and is why I, it's why my first startup was completely dedicated for foster youth and adopted youth and kids who have experienced trauma and neglect um, to be able to offer the equine experience. And I formed a model that I, that personally worked for me, that I also saw work for other kids in the social work field. How that's blossomed now Well, when I moved here, I brought three horses with me. I left a herd of 20. That was very heartbreaking for me. But I brought three with me to start this ranch. And they have helped me build this next life, this next chapter alongside me. And I didn't know, but, you know, they were my main my main healing strength when I went through my traumatic brain injury accident, which did involve one of my horses. Um, But the recovery process, they were also there by my side through that very, very clearly. Mm -hmm. So I have another relationship with them. And just to back up um, and let me know if, you know, how far you want to go into this, but (laughs) my recollection is towards the end of the last chapter your California chapter, there was a point where you were experiencing what I would characterize, not diagnose, but just characterize as debilitating depression and anxiety to the point where it was like overwhelmingly difficult to just do the functions that were necessary to continue on. Is that, does that seem accurate? Yes. And And that ultimately what led to my decision to resign from that chapter in my life. And then I I think too, and I this was really important at the time, you were getting basically the standard Western treatment for that and it wasn't working for you. And that led to what? I mean, that really led you to explore like this, this isn't helping. Like I'm not better, I'm actually worse, right? That's my recollection. Yeah, and it, it it's hard because I was the leader in a very big mental health nonprofit organization in the county. So, and led by state funding and Western medicine. Mm -hmm. So I felt it was my job to follow those protocols for myself, you know, do what the doctor says, which works for some people and for others like me, it doesn't work. It, it was a plethora of prescription meds and th- it just made me numb. And then after a while it would just stop working. And their way of dealing with that was to change the meds or to up them. 
And at the end of my time in California, there were some very intense suicidal moments that I really sat with myself and I said, if I keep going like this, I'm going to die. Yeah. And I'm going to try anything at this point, but it can't be this anymore. And if that means that I have to resign and leave my lifelong dream, then so be it. I'll start another chapter, but I have to live. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is, I would, not that starting the nonprofit wasn't brave, but I would characterize that as like one of the largest brave things you've ever done. Yes. <laughs> and probably- it had a lot of repercussions, right? Oh, Good yeah. and bad. But yeah. it was a big effing deal. Yes. Yeah. It's okay to swear. I can I can swear it on was- here. You can swear on here. It was a big Perfect. fucking deal. Yeah. And it was the first time I made a decision for me. Mm. Only me. Mm. That was really hard. Well, that's a, that, I mean, that's exactly the, the idea for women to be able to decide how, where, when, to what degree they're going to show up in the world is such a huge, I don't think that people understand how conditioned we are to do that solely for other people and how dangerous it feels to say, no, I'm doing this for me and that is okay. It is okay for me to make this decision for me because if I don't, I will die. Like some part of me will die, whether I will physically die, mentally. I mean, look at how many women are completely dissociated 90% of the time that they're out in the world. Yeah. So yeah, I feel pretty passionately about that. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say if anybody hears anything in the background, it's my dog, my sweet and dog. So <laughs> yeah, she's hacking. I'm like, could you not? Um, <laughs> so so the move to Montana was also a very brave thing because Montana is not. It's a it's a beautiful place. I loved it. I loved living there. It's incredible, but it's also really hard. Like it's physically hard to live there. And I remember when I told my dad, who lived in Montana for over a decade, where you were moving, he's like, oh, fuck, it's really cold there. (laughs) (laughs) And that's saying a lot because it's cold everywhere in Montana. Yeah. Um, But how was that first winter for you? I remember it being like, what have I gotten myself into? Oh, it's because it's not only the getting used, I wouldn't say getting used to, acclimating to the seasons here that are so different. It's, it was changing my work because my work was still with horses. It was still in the ranch industry, but in the winters here, you can't do much. People don't want to ride when it's negative 20. Horses can't, you know, you can't work them to sweat in those kind of temperatures most of the horse trainers or, um, you know, therapeutic ranch businesses, they snowbird and go to Arizona or Texas for the winter and mm-hmm. take their horses with them. Right. Nobody really stays year round in this. And the first winter, it was actually a mild winter for Bozeman. But it was still hard. <laughs> oh God, I'm dying because you know yeah. it's <laughs> it's still it was still negative twenty. 
That's right. Wild. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about the the idea because I have seasonal affective disorder. And so mm -hmm. for me, when it's gray and it's, you know, the you can't see because it's just that glow gray all day, could be yep. any time. You don't know what time it is. I I really struggle with that. And I was thinking about how, you know, when you move to a place that has such distinct seasons like Montana, it really asks you to get back in touch with the natural rhythm of things because we're asking people to be productive 24-7, 365, and that is not what we're meant to do. We right. have to recharge. Right. And so, I was like much living homeless <laughs> in a grain silo. And I was forced inward to be with yeah. myself. And is that when you started writing your book? Was that winter? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So tell me about your book. So I started it last winter because I couldn't work outside. Um, I was in survival mode of how am I even going to keep this? How am I going to pay my bills through every single year of the season being like this? My horses eat double the amount of hay to right. stay warm. The electric bill is through the roof. I mean, this was all a new experience for me. And all I could think of and how, how I processed being with myself for the first time in my life trapped on a ranch <laughs> in a grain silo by myself was Jesus. through writing. <laughs> Right. I mean, the thing about you, Savannah, is that you don't do anything by half. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're like all in. Like, yes. I'm going to be alone now. I'm all in. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. And what came out of that writing for you? And and also, I don't know if you want to connect this to sort of your the explorations that you were able to do in your mental health journey that, you know, took you on the road to learning about plant medicine. I think it was exactly what I needed, which was just to be with myself in the dark and not have any judgment around me while I was going through my process because I wasn't in a big community leadership position here. I was kind of hiding mm -hmm. away with my horses, isolated. I'm trying to think of, I mean, the plant medicine journey for me started in the spring of 2021 after I had gotten off of all of my prescription antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, and it, and it took a good 60 days to get out of my system before um, the medicine workers, the psychologist, that I work with in Southern California, let me do plant medicine for healing. And it was after that very first experience that I think I did like 20 years of therapy in one session. And that's when it, the, the main point came to the forefront to me was you can't work in your pain anymore, which was the nonprofit. Mm -hmm. You can't look 
at your um, childhood trauma every single day anymore. You're past that. Move on. Mm, that's so and powerful. I know that if I didn't have that experience with people who have been doing this work in the underground for therapeutic treatment for decades, I knew if I didn't have that experience, I probably would have never left because in society who would leave their lifelong dream after taking it to a very big point of success. Right. But it was very blatant and it was very clear and following that work and my, um, my integration work with the psychologist when I returned home and I, and that was all I did is I was like, okay, I'm going to start making plans to start my next chapter somewhere else. And I don't know what that looks like and I don't know what I'll be doing, but I, I know what it is that is driving my mental health into the ground. And it's, it's almost, it's like a place that I created. <laughs> Essentially, right. It was the dream I created and worked so hard for that was slowly killing me. Well, I think I, I've been thinking about this a lot and obviously I'm not a psychologist, but I've been thinking about how it is that we go about recreating the things that need to be healed. And one of the things that I've always admired about you and always noticed is how you are very focused on creating a chosen family wherever you are. You yeah. have you create familial relationships with the people you work with. Yeah. And and so it's almost like in that past California chapter you were really trying to create something that you needed so that you could heal through it. And when that got to a point where it's like that's not enough. There are other things that you are destined to do in your life. It was almost like when you've eaten too much and you're suddenly nauseous. It's like your whole self is just like, I'm done with this childhood trauma pain shit. Like, let's yeah. do something different. Yeah. And I knew that my, my healing journey in the plant medicine world wasn't going to be accepted in a rural community especially being somebody, you know, I was in a, I was in a pretty big leadership spotlight as a young woman. And I didn't want that. I didn't want it to be something that I hid or that was considered not acceptable just because it looked different. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how to explain that. No, I got it. I really do. <laughs> I get it. Because I think, well, I think one of the things that is also true of the female experience is how everything we do is supposed to be available for other people. It's right. all supposed to be like generative for someone else or at least accessible yeah. or available. And when you say, no, this is actually for me, it's like, well, who the fuck do you think you are? Yeah. You know, and learning to actually say, oh, this piece is for me. And I will share it when, where, how, and why I want to, but I'm not doing it on demand. You know, you right. don't get to put a quarter in and I give you wisdom or nourishment or love or whatever it is that you need. Like, right. That's not how it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I want to ask, speaking of familial, I've seen um, you've had several interns and folks come up in the last two years to live on the ranch and work with you. Mm -hmm. And you always have an all-female crew. So tell me a little bit about that decision. Is that purposeful? What's, you know, how is that? How do people respond to that? I feel like there's some pride in that for you. Yeah, it's never it's never really been purposeful. And for some reason, and I just trust it now over the last decade, the, the women come, they find me. Mm -hmm. I've not ever put job ads or looking for assistance or they've the right women, the right strong, um, capable heart-centered young women they're always in their mid-20s for some reason that is a such a that's such a pivotal time to me for a woman um they've always found me i love my two assistants that live on the ranch with me right now they gave up so much to be working alongside of me they're not paid they work here for free and through these winters, through these seasons, through helping me with my brain injury accident. Right. They both left careers to be here. Wow. Yeah. I think that the horse industry in general has, I mean, there's no place that I can think of. And I obviously don't have experience in every possible job situation. So somebody has a different opinion, they can email me and tell me, but I see the horse industry as being so drawing people. Let me back up. I've never seen an industry that draws so many people who are willing to work so hard for so little in terms of compensation just for the knowledge, just for the love of the horse, just for the love of the work. I mean, I did it. I moved from California to North Carolina, sight unseen, packed up all my stuff, moved across country to take a job as an intern where I was making, I think, $75 a week. Yeah. And I was literally getting up and starting work at six and going to bed at 10. And I had an hour off in the afternoon to like get a can of soup and maybe take a nap. Yeah. And like that was not uncommon. There were three other interns working with me doing the exact same thing because the love of the actual horse and the land. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my business is still not in the profitable section because we are a startup, but myself and my assistants we work so hard for the community and for our horses that reside with us here that I believe that we're, we are still in the building phase, but we are building something great. Yeah. And we're still each figuring out what that looks like for each of us. But in the meantime, we're when it's negative 40 with a negative 55 wind chill storm, we're feeding three times a night you know, 1 a.m., 5 a.m. in the morning to keep our horses warm, doing checks to make sure our elderly or our yearlings 
aren't struggling. If, if they are, we put them in the barn, but we're in it together. Right. Yeah. And you can't, you cannot get those lived experiences by reading about it, by doing a video course. Like when you're in it and all of a sudden, when I was um, in North Carolina, I was managing a barn of 32 horses and we had this huge unexpected storm come in and it was wet and then it froze. And there were Mm -hmm. a lot of horses who were out with no shelters. And, you know, you have to make these decisions like, oh, okay you know, I will be not sleeping for a while. And that's just how it goes because your responsibility is so huge. You know, the horse always comes first. So it's like, you really learn what you're made of. Yeah. And I think that builds resiliency too. I agree. Especially as women, you know, we're just a bunch of young women living on this ranch, caring for currently 30 head, all ages, all breeds of horses um with a glacial winter (laughs) right i know i i watched some of your reels from i don't i want to say the weekend before last it really wasn't that long ago and it was like so freaking brutal and yet i i don't know um if i will give all of your information in your instagram and and how to get a hold of you in the show notes as well but but your instagram was so entertaining about it because you always bring such transparency about your experience, about how you're dealing with it. I mean, at a certain point, all you can do is laugh because you're just like, this is so ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> and why did I, I, I honestly, it has been so miserable here this winter that sometimes I get, and you know, I have two other jobs besides my own horses where I work with horses. And I think, why did I think this was a good hobby? What the hell was <laughs> I thinking? Like, why, you know? Um, yeah. And you just have to laugh. Like, it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the expense of, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this because I know a lot of listeners aren't horse people, but I just want to say like the expenses of having the kind of facility that you have, even the small facility that I have doing equine assisted coaching, like it's gone through the roof over the last few years. I, I, I got hay recently and I almost like died from a coughing fit. I just was like, how? Yeah. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> you know, and, and I, same with you. Like when it gets cold, cold, you know, you feed more. And and I think that there's a, such a movement now towards alternative modalities for healing. And mm-hmm. it's really important because I think people are beginning to recognize the limits of cognitive therapy and talk therapy and seeing that people need to have experiential modalities to really dig into some of these places where they've been wounded and having a mental health facility with horses is a gem like it's something mm-hmm. that's precious and i i i'm getting from your feed that you have a community that's really supportive of you there oh yeah that's one thing about my move here that i knew was right is the and i have a very you know i have a little small community but even in the first three months without even being open yet, I was embraced in a way that I've never felt before. And it was, it, it was for me, it wasn't for the work I produced.
All right, it's time for the shout out. So today on the shout out, I want to talk about Sharon Blackie. So I should back up and tell you the shout out is something that I'm enthused about. It could be a person, a place, an idea, a thing, a product. Sometimes there's affiliate links, most of the time not. Um, this week, I want to talk about Sharon Blackie because A, she's amazing. B, she is one of my idols. And C, every time I go on her website, I'm just blown away by how prolific she is. She is a writer, a psychologist, a mythologist. She has a crazy amount of degrees. She started out as a neuroscientist and worked in that field for a long time. She went back to school. She got immersed in myth and uh, in fairy tales and in archetypes, depth psychology and transpersonal psychology. And then if that weren't enough, she also got involved deeply into Celtic myth and Norse myths from the areas that she grew up. She has written numerous books. The one that made her, I think, more like of a household name or at least um, better known. It's been a very popular book that really became successful by word of mouth is If Women Rose Rooted. And Sharon Blackie has any number of online courses. She has memberships. She's on Substack. She writes prolifically. Um, she's just a wonder. I actually did not even know that I, okay, she just recently published a book called Hagitude, and it had a year-long membership, and I wanted to join it so bad, but I finally realized, which I detail in the year of saying no, that I am not infinitely expandable, and I cannot do everything, so I sadly came to that conclusion and had to not do it, but I had no idea that she has all of these self-study courses as well. She had this year-long, really awesome it's still in progress um, course around Hagitude. And then as you go through her website, you see that she has courses on the divine feminine and women's psychology and Celtic myths and uh, uh, women of root and bone. I mean, just amazing stuff. And those are self-study courses that you could join anytime. So I am in awe of this woman. If my career looked anything like hers, I would be blown away. Unfortunately, she started at like 23 and I'm not, so mm, it's unlikely, but not impossible. It's, uh, you could find her at SharonBlackie.net. Um, Blackie is B-L-A-C-K-I-E. So that's SharonBlackie.net. She is also on Instagram. You can also find her books wherever you buy books. I recommend um, checking out her Substack. She is fabulous. So that is the shout out. Yeah, right. It wasn't for the opportunities you created for others or for yeah. some association that, you know, had some cachet. Yeah, it was literally just, oh, this is what, you know, this is who you are. This is how you live. I mean, it, and it was a full embrace. And, and I was reminded of that a year later when my accident happened and this community completely wrapped, wrapped around me and was not going to let me go to a residential care facility and was not going to let the business die. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I, I'm still sort of like, how did you manage that? Let's talk about the accident, what led up to it, and about what has come out of it in terms of your own understandings and then also your community. And, and I don't know how far back you want to start with it, but I, my understanding, and tell me, tell me your story on your own words, but part of what was going on prior to that accident was some really deep personal things that were happening. Yeah, I, I was in my first trimester of pregnancy and it was obviously an unplanned pregnancy, but it was a decision that I made that my, my heart and my soul made that I decided to go through with being a single mom um, while still working for myself on this ranch, living in a grain silo, tiny home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so I had made the decision like, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, I honored the the dad's decision that he didn't want to be part of it, you know, because I am pro-choice with, with both. Um, And so I was going forward. I went through the first trimester of pregnancy on my own while dealing with some very, not dealing, healing from some very deep mother wounding in my ancestral lineage. And the week before my accident, I miscarried. Mm. That was an experience that I also went through by myself in the grain silo, um, mattress on the floor, grief that I don't think that you can really explain unless you've been through it of experiencing death in your body when there was supposed to be life there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was so heart-wrenching for me. I that week was probably one of the hardest weeks of my life. I took work off and the following week, um, I was scheduled to do a kid's session. I still work with kids here. I still get a lot of people who know my work in California who ask for me to work with their kids with my horses. And I, and I take a few of them on and, um, I had one of the moms text me and, and say, you know, he'd, we'd really like to see you. He really needs his horse time with you. However it looks, you know, can you make this happen? And I just was like, okay, um, I can work this one kid's session. We're just going to have a little ride to the river. I need it. This kiddo needs it. And it's going to be on my best horses. And, and he's 10. And me and him, we saddled up. We took a little ride to the river, came back to the ranch. Um, I was on my my best horse, Gus, who has EPM, which is a neurological disease that doesn't usually show extreme symptoms like this. And he had a seizure in his spine um, out of nowhere. While we were at a standstill in the parking lot, and it happened so quickly and so unexpectedly, that he flipped over on top of me and it happened so quick. I wasn't able to push myself off. And so, um, it slammed my head in his body slammed my head into the ground. 
under him. And then he rolled on it a second time when he was getting up. And if the child and the mom hadn't had been there, I would have died. Yeah. Because even I came to, I don't remember this part at all, but they had even told me that I was fighting calling 911, that I was fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I fall off, you know, it's okay. I don't, don't call 911. Well, they called an ambulance anyways. Thank God. Yeah. Because nobody else would have been on the ranch. It, it, you know, my, my assistant was at work at her, at her day job. Um, I know if that happened and I would have just died because brain bleeds are, are quick and fast like that. And they're not always obvious. Yeah, no, you don't see it. There was no blood coming out um, until I was on the life flight over to Billings because the ambulance, um, they immediately called in a life flight to the ranch who flew me to Billings Neuro. And it was on, it was there on the way that I stopped breathing. Mm -hmm. And I had to get in emergency brain surgery. Um, and then I was in a coma for a week and it was a coma that they weren't certain if I was going to wake up or not. So my community found out about that and they took care of everything. They took care of the horses being fed twice a day, paddocks being mucked, bills being paid. They drove, you know, Billings is two two and a half hours, three hours from Bozeman. Mm-hmm. And they drove and I had a friend stay by my side from when I was in the ICU post-surgery until the day that I was um, released. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that came out of this is really seeing how loved you are. Mm-hmm. Like that there are people who deeply, like love is an action, right? Love is a verb, right. not just a thing. And like, you saw people who were like, I'm verbing for you. Yeah. Like, this is it. I'm here. Yeah. And that was the first time in my life I had ever experienced that. Yeah. I don't know if this will resonate with you. And, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't, it's totally fine. But <clears throat> I, it immediately made me think of like, was there a part of you I know that you were going to name your daughter Riata. That's mm-hmm. the correct way to pronounce it, right? Yes. Do you think when you look back on it, was there some internal part of you that wanted to be with her? Mm-hmm. You know, was there something drawing you? And I only say that because I, when I was in my early 20s, had a relationship with a man whose mother died very unexpectedly. She was crossing the street and hit by a car. Mm-hmm. And he went to, he went up to Portland to, take care of the situation and take care of and do the funeral and, and collect her ashes. And when he was driving home with her ashes, he ran off the road, hit a tree and died. And it was like, like there's something about the ones that you love calling to you across that veil. And that is immediately what popped into my head when you were describing having that miscarriage, experiencing death within you. And then experiencing death again within you. Uh, That's giving me goosebumps right now. But like, that's 
heavy stuff. And mm -hmm. does that seem, does that have any aliveness for you? It's, it's crazy because when I woke up from the coma, you know, I had a trach tube down my throat. It, I remember clearly being, and I'll talk about this in the book, being in that space of making a choice with death. Mm. And the only person present was my daughter that had just left. And her and I had a conversation back and forth of, and I still, and it's crazy because I don't, my short-term memory is hard with a TBI, but this specific event I remembered since I woke up. And the way that I woke up, my friend Becca describing it as so traumatic, it makes sense. But in that coma space, and I know other people with that have had near-death experiences also having this, that doctors can't explain. Um, it was a conversation with her, and I was saying, I want to stay here with you. I've already done my life's work, and this mm -hmm. is how I want to go, doing what I love on my best horse. This is exactly how I want my to die. And she kept saying back to me, I left before this and I knew this accident was happening. So I had to leave, but mm -hmm. you have work to do. You're not done. And she kept having this conversation with me and it wasn't until, and I didn't wake up until she said, I'll be back soon, but I can't be back unless you go back. And that's when I opened my eyes. And what is even crazier about this story is two days after I woke up when I was in the hospital, um, a, a breeding ranch in Montana donated their best stud yearling horse for my recovery so that our business would stay, um, would live through this because it was a breeding ranch that loves our facility and our work that we do. So they donated their best yearling stud to be sold with all um, proceeds going to me and my recovery. And I looked at his papers and his mother's registered name was Savannah's Choice. Shut up. Her name is spelt just like mine, which isn't a normal Savannah it's spelling. Super uncommon. That is, un that's unbelievable. I mean, it's believable, but it's like, I don't think you get any clear notes from the universe and no. something like that and that's how i knew Ooh. like man she did send i did make a choice and it's like and she sent me this little baby who i ended up keeping i didn't sell <laughs> <laughs> i was like this is gonna be my horse sorry <laughs> <laughs> and and she also i think knew that i needed this my due date was two days ago I needed to have this baby energy this winter to help me through this. Yeah. And I, just to reflect back to you, I remember years ago when you said, oh, this um, intergenerational trauma stops with me because I will never have a child. And I thought, yep. you already have children. They're just not here yet. Like, yep. it's so obvious because you have such maternal instincts 
know, it's like everywhere you go, you're taking care of people in this very loving maternal way. And I don't know if everybody knows that about you because you have another side that's a very much warrior energy. Yeah. But the the maternal side of you has been obvious to me from the day that I met you. And I was like, okay, we'll see about that. You know, yeah. which, and, and to be frank, I don't have children. And I think it's totally legit for a woman to say like, I'm not into that. That's not my gig. Yeah. But, but I see you mothering, whether they're from your actual body or not throughout your life. That's part right. of your beingness here on this planet. Yeah. I mean, I do it for baby horses and I, it's a work that I love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your recovery from this TBI. And I know that there's some controversy around um, people choosing alternative modalities in their healing process. And I'm okay with that controversy. And I'm okay with people not agreeing with decisions that other people make. But what I'm not okay with is people thinking they know better than you do about yourself. And I, yes. so I'm totally open people having responses to this episode and what we're about to talk about. And I love to have the conversation. It's important to have informed conversations and to make informed choices for yourself. So with that being said, tell me about how you, how you decided to work on your recovery, what's happened for you and the research that you've kind of looked at. And I also want to start with too, that every brain injury is so different. I mean, we're dealing with the brain. Right. Which is, which. <laughs> let's be fair, as much as we've come in the last 30 years in terms of brain imaging and understanding the different things that happen within the brain, it's still a huge mystery. And anybody who tells you differently is full of shit. Yeah. And that's why, uh, I mean, that's been my journey with neurohealth is that they kind of have a one-size-fits-all. We're going to give you opioids, we're going to give you an antidepressant, and we're going to wish you the best. But that's all. that's all the stuff that you had just, like, literally gotten off of a year and a half previously. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because with brain injuries, the symptoms, they have maybe, like, a list of symptoms, but some apply to you, some don't, some are more extreme, some are, for everybody, it's so different. And that's because it's the area of the brain that the impact was on or the the area of the brain that you bled out of. I mean, there's no, people are still trying to understand it. So I do want to say anybody with a TBI, like my experience may not be your experience or what works for me may not work for you. Um, It isn't a one size fits all deal like Western medicine has been treating it. Um, so, and, and I should say that one of the things that Western medicine is very good at is the dealing with the acute portion of it. Like, had you not been life flighted, if you hadn't had those incredible surgeons, you might not be talking to me right now. So it's not, this is not a let's shit on Western medicine. It's just a, Hey, like there's a lot of ways to look at this and this is one of them. Yeah. Totally. The the neurosurgeons, the people that got into that brain bleed quick and fast. And and I even had, you know, I had a skull fracture with that impact as well that they were able to address. I mean, you're so right. The acute portion of the medical care, beautiful. It's mm-hmm. the post um, right. surgery. It's that journey for years for some people with TBIs. 
Oh, or sometimes I mean, for life. I, I will say that my partner um, is a former service member and he has a TBI and he has a friend who he served in Iraq with and he has a TBI and there are things, there are overlapping symptoms, but they're very different. And the, you know, my partner is able to be mostly functional. These things come up in terms of TBI, emotional regulation issues, right? Which is a big one. But for his friend, it's like he can't regulate enough to even function in everyday life. Yeah. And, and nobody's like, he's not, nobody's addressing it. The, you know, I mean, it's a whole nother subject, the VA and how all that's going, but like they it's not something where you're just your your brain and your sutures and your skull is healed and so off you go. No. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no, and and it was a journey I was having to do by myself again. Pregnancy by myself, miscarriage by myself, brain injury by myself. Um when I got home, I still couldn't walk very well had to use canes, my balance, that, that being that my balance, how that works in the brain. I'm still, I don't understand, <laughs> but, um, my speech was trying to form sentences, trying to remember words. Um, my hearing, I don't know if my hearing will ever come back. I don't have hearing on my right side, but when I woke up from my coma, I couldn't even open my right eye. They didn't know if I was going to have vision in my right eye again because the area of impact was on the right side. Mm-hmm. But it did. I'm glad that my eye opened up. Um, and oh, and I don't have smell or taste. So I've lost. Still. Yeah, no smell, still no taste. <laughs> wow. That's that's wild, especially somebody yeah. who likes food as much as you do. I do. <laughs> It makes me, now I have my assistants be taste testers and tell me what things taste and smell like. (laughs) Wow. Um, And those are just still symptoms that I'm dealing with along with personality changes. Oh, okay. That's interesting. What is the, what have you observed in yourself that's different? Oh, let's see. I, and I talked about this actually yesterday with the medicine worker, medicine woman that I work with. Um, she said, I just have more of a unconditioned response because at first I was putting it in the range of TBI rage. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I don't lash out. I don't scream. I don't, I don't, I'm not physically violent, nothing like that. It just boils up inside of me, the response to some of the things that I have to hear. And she was like, I think you're just having a very raw, completely validated reaction and the conditioning that you grew up with of be seen, not heard, be polite, be nice. It's not there anymore. Mm, That's so interesting. And it's, uh, and I don't verbalize like the thoughts now that come up, but, and the personality also changed being with, um, you know, I asked my assistants this, my first month back in the arena, literally a month after brain surgery, I was like, Hey, time to go to work. And they're <laughs> like, aren't you supposed to be in bed? Um, you can barely walk. But the personality change they noticed the most is they're like, you're so much lighter. You don't, you're not as like heavy or dark or 
you know, there's just like a lightness and humor. Mm -hmm. That might have just been with being with death mm -hmm. in different ways that, that I said, you know, life looks different now. Life feels different now. Um, experiencing things through a different lens. Well, I, I would say, you know, I'm a pretty straightforward person, so I'm just going to say it as I see it, but I would say what I have noticed in you, and this is just from a distance, um, is there's less armor. There's less armor up. Yeah. You, you, it feels like, this is what I was saying earlier about the in touch with your humanity, like, like there's less need to protect yourself because you know where you really live now. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. And and they even put this on the list of TBI symptoms that the hospital gives you when you leave. Personality change, emotional regulation, you know, all of the things, that, depression. Um, so I recovered in the silo, mattress on the floor. I had people doing three day, three times a day checks check-ins on me to make sure I hadn't fallen. That was the biggest deal that the hospital made was that we feel like she's going to fall and hit her head again. So my community surrounded me and they were rotating first thing in the morning, afternoon, evening checks, making sure I was eating, making sure I had any medication I needed. And this is so true to my soul and being, I would wait for the person to come and leave for my evening check. And I'd wait for my boarders to leave. And I'd wait for my assistant to go back in her camper. And I would hobble out with my canes. And go see the horses. Horse pasture. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I, I knew what was coming. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and I would but, sit there with them. But the truth is, and I was just talking to um, a mutual friend of ours that is going to be on a different episode about the actual regulation that comes from being in the electromagnetic field of a horse's heart. Mm -hmm. You can't, this is not some woo-woo BS. Like, this is a real thing. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons that, that you know, equine-facilitated therapy or equine-facilitated therapeutic services of any kind work is it's not necessarily what you're doing. It's the presence of a being that is so grounded. And it, to me, the fact that you went out there every night probably really helped you come back down into your body. Oh, uh, 100%. I, they did so much for me in my first three months of and it was, you know, it wasn't riding. I couldn't, I didn't actually get approval to ride that I begged for until the three month mark. And then they were like, at a slow walk, don't right. jostle. <laughs> if you fall off, you're dead. And I'm like, yeah. okay, perfect. Sounds like horse riding to me. Um, and I didn't even follow that. I got on to 2.5. I tried 2.5 months after my brain surgery. And it, that experience alone was beautiful. But um, I decided three weeks after getting back from the hospital, still no balance, really having a hard time with my speech. I couldn't sleep at all. There's a big, oh, insomnia is huge, especially in the first few months of um, recovering, your brain recovering from a brain bleed. There's absolutely no sleep because your brain is just on high power mm -hmm. trying to heal that spot. Um, 
but I decided to do, go off of the opioids. I kick, I would didn't even take the, the prescription for the antidepressant. I was like, you know, I love, I love the neurosurgeons, but I said to them blatantly, like, I can't take this and I won't take it because, because I, I don't know it, how I have a history of being yeah. suicidal. Come on. They, di they didn't even ask me that. Oh, they, you're yeah, kidding. They nope. They did not ask me why they didn't ask me, have you taken this? There was just a here, this is what you need to take. And I said, no, that is and so even wild with a, to me. Even with a brain injury, being kind of nonverbal at that time, still in the hospital, I was still clearly able to say, no, I can't. Um, but I did take the pain because the pain was really, the pain was through the roof um, with a skull fracture and a brain injury and also the sutures on my head and all yeah. the things. Um, but three weeks after I could feel myself, all the op all the opioids did was um, like put me in a numb, uh, unconscious space, kind of. Right, zoned out. Yeah, just not really there. I mean, it was great for the pain and that's it. But I could feel myself getting addicted to it. And I didn't want to have to deal with a brain injury and an op op opioid addiction. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. I made the decision for myself one day. I was like, I'm not taking these anymore. I think this week is going to be absolute hell. And it absolutely was. I, and it was extremely painful, physically, mentally, but I kept, I, what was um, going on with this was I, I need, I want to start leaning on plant medicines for my healing. And I can't do that if I'm on opioids. So I'm, I need to get this out of my body and I will deal with pain how I feel works best for what I know has worked for me. All my medicine workers that I have worked with before the injury were on call, talking with me, telling me about their experience working with clients with TBIs, what medicines, how I should start dosing, when I should start um, using different all you know psychedelics and and how that has been studied what's being studied for traumatic brain injury but they were also telling me like trust you know trust yourself and your inner knowing of what you think you you need and once i started that started back gently into um plant medicine I started to see recovery happen rapidly. My balance came back. I could walk without canes. I was How, what, what kind of time frame? Like, what kind of time frame did you observe this? Because yeah. I am not an expert, but I feel like some of those things happened more quickly than I've seen in other people. I'll just put it that way. Oh, yeah. In a month. Wow. Uh, a month was, from when you started using when you, a month from when you stopped using opioids, a month yep. from when you started using plant medicine. A month after I stopped using opioids and started microdosing again. Uh-huh. And I was like I said, back in the riding arena, my assistants were on our client horses, and I was able to 
sit on my little stool and talk them through training. I was able to start doing groundwork with the Colts, the young horses. If anybody, you know, people don't know what groundwork is if they're not horse people, but it, it, even though you're working on the ground, it's still something that requires an enormous amount of coordination, timing, quick thinking. You have to have reactions that are right on in terms of directing, you know, a large animal who has a lot of energy. Yes. And the connection there, the mental connection, the emotional regulation. I mean, I was Mm, back to work. Smart. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't even thought of that. But of course, you know, you have to be emotionally regulated to ask them to be. Yeah. So yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. And it was just and I was and we were doing it five days a week. And then I started, you know, doing deeper uh, macro doses journeys by myself. And after every one would talk with my medicine workers, would talk about the changes, my brain started to feel more itself. And I could increase being able to show up in life. Um, and I, I yeah. think that it's really, I think two things. One is that it's important to say, again, this isn't something that you did solo willy-nilly. You had a lot of guidance from very experienced people right. with you in this. Right. It wasn't just like a, hey, I think I'm going to fix myself. Right. But secondly, we ha- there's so much to be learned about what psychedelics, and specifically in this instance, psilocybin, yeah. what, how, how it engenders these positive reactions. It's very much unknown at this point because of all the time that we weren't able to do what's obviously really important research. And now that people are having that opportunity, they're seeing that the parts of the brain that are activated, it makes, you know, from a layman's perspective, again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but it makes sense to me that you would have this sense of returning to yourself or being able to, yeah, I just think that there's a lot of research that needs to be done. And I think, I think it's really important that people not jump to any conclusions, but really allow the the process of people's, you know, case studies are just as important as um, quantitative research, but you can see it in both. That right. the truth is that these these experiences, when done with guidance and intention, are wildly successful in, in helping people heal from trauma. And that is what a TBI is. It's a trauma to the brain. Right that affects the whole being right from emotional to physical to talking to having your five senses i mean yeah my i have been i've been doing so much of my own research and learning about traumatic brain injuries um since i'm having to live through it mm-hmm. and kind of figure out how to heal on my own. Um, I think also I was put in a position of um, I didn't have any other choice but to get up and I looked out the window and every single day there was something that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. feeding the horses 
mucking, it, it being here on the ranch in recovery, it gave me purpose of, okay, you don't have a lot of time to lay around and be on opi opioids. Mm -hmm. Like you really got to pull yourself up out of this or this life around you isn't going to be here for you. And I think that that having to like really dig deep into that resiliency of I have to do this not only because I need these horses to be fed, but my assistants need a place to live. Right. My boarders need a place to have community and have a safe place to ride. Like there are so many people counting on my recovery that I need like whatever it takes. I've got to get there. And I don't have five years to do it. Right. Yeah. I, I do think too, and I understand the um, concerns about, you know, somehow it's safer to be in some sort of residential care. But the, the truth is, is that such a huge part of healing is the mental game. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really, it, and what we know about that is that the more people have co-regulation with other people, the more that people have the sense of being embraced and that they're a part of something, you know, loneliness is death. I mean, that's just mm -hmm. true as mammals. Like, you know, there, there's nothing more important to healing than feeling the connective power of the things that you love, whether it's horses or people or, you know, whatever that is. And so I don't think when people talk about these risk factors, it's like, well, what about the risk factor of, you know, the unrelenting misery of residential care facilities? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so fucking depressing. And we all know this. This yeah. isn't like, it doesn't matter how much you pay for them or how much you jazz them up. Like, we all know that it's not a great place to be. No, for anyone. Right. And, you know, when I was talking to my neurosurgeons that were contemplating releasing me, I, I simply told them I need, they were like, well, you, we don't want you walking around the ranch and you shouldn't be around the horses. You're a fall risk. All, you know, all the things and I was like, I just need to look out the window and see them because I've been without them for weeks and it's eating me alive. And if my brain is going to be building a new brain, essentially, I, I can't have that be a life where I don't see them or, or they're not in it anymore. I can't have that be how my brain recovers and rebuilds is that they're, they're not a part of it. Mm -hmm. And, and your purpose. I mean, right. Having a purpose is such a gift to begin with. Mm -hmm. You know, so many people don't know what their purpose is yet. But when you do know it and you're like, this is my touchstone. This is what I am. This is me. Like right. you can't take somebody out of that and then be like, okay, do the biggest healing job that of your entire life that we could possibly come up with. Yeah. Okay, ready? Go. Yeah. And do it in a place that you don't know, people you don't know drugs that you don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Such a powerful journey. I, I really appreciate you sharing it. And I think I want to say that I really appreciate the fact that you're very transparent about what you go through. Anybody that follows you 
on Instagram will know. Like, I, I mean, honestly, the reason that I knew that something happened to you is I was like, Savannah's not posting. What the fuck's going on? What's happened to her? Yeah. You know, like I could feel that radio silence because you've always been a person who's modeling like, this is what I'm experiencing. And if it has resonance for you and I can help you by sharing with you what I'm experiencing, I'm willing to go there even if other people don't agree with what I'm saying. And I think that's a very brave stance. Mm. Thank you. And I, I, that's something I admire a lot. And I think with that being said, just being conscious of the time, I want to know, um, I know that you were talking about your book and that's coming out, but I'd love to hear like where, where are you going now, now that you're starting to feel not, you know, 100% recovered, but you've got a lot of you back and you're starting to make plans for the spring and summer, what's coming up for you and what are you excited about offering? The one thing that I've kept in my life and even through this brain injury that's been really clear to me is my work with young horses even if it's not what pays the bills, I mean, I love teaching to the next generation um, of people working with horses like my assistants how to create a good foundation for a horse so that they thrive through their life. So mm -hmm. my work with, with colt starting and young horses is going to continue because it is emotional regulation for me. It keeps me in check. I never stop learning from every single horse I get my hands on. Um, that's going to stay here at the ranch. It's why my assistants are here as well for their training, for their experience, um, and doing it alongside a very supportive woman and the environment that we're in here um, with our community. I've We've set up a couple of clinics, horse clinics in the summertime, June and July, uh, called Conscious Horsemanship. And oh, that's I, really, that's I'm so just, excited about this. Yeah. That's bringing, that's bringing the connection piece to horse training that I don't think a lot of, um, professionals bring to their clinics. And it's not, I don't want it to be like the woo-woo, we're not riding our horses, we're not asking anything of them. No, this is about partnership, connection, and working with our horses from a more conscious space so that the life they have with you is purposeful and meaningful. But it can be, um, it can be hard to get guidance in that in the horse industry. So, yeah. And you call it conscious horsemanship, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I do a lot of lessons here in Bozeman with horse owners and their horses. But because we're in Montana, um, you know, this, a lot of people don't live here year round. So that's why the, hor the summer horse clinics, people can travel here, um, trailer their horses we're going to have space in the barn for their horses in stalls. And then we're going to have camping areas on the ranch to spend weekends with us. We're also and going to be adding. beautiful there. And I don't, I don't know, people who haven't been to Montana, there's a window of time in Montana. It's about 90 days long where it is the most perfect place on earth. Yes. And, yes. and that is like June and July. It is magnificent. Like yes. it's 
unbelievable. So yeah, I, I mean, if if people had the opportunity to go there and trailer their horses, and I, I just think that's fabulous. And I hope that you do it every year so that I can come some one of these years and assist you. Yes. I'd love to do that. That would be awesome. And we'll probably even offer um, people that don't have horses, uh, auditing people mm -hmm. to just audit and watch and be part of it because we're going to be offering things. Um, and I haven't put it concrete yet, but like really special ranch dinners in the barn, um, mm. barn, barn yoga in the morning. Yeah. We're going to be, we're going to be making it the SNS stables type of weekend that we would host I, people. I assume you're going to take people on rides to the river. Oh yeah. Will, will they be wearing will they be wearing bathing suits? <laughs> Probably if they feel comfortable. <laughs> Classic. That's my favorite thing to do. I love it. And so then I think I also had down in my notes that you're offering some internships and you're doing some remote mentorships. Yeah. As well. Is that is that full? Are people still able to apply for those? Where are you at with that? Uh, my remote mentorships, I still have a couple openings and I love, I've been doing the remote mentorship since last fall and I love them because I get to connect with social workers, nonprofit leaders, horse trainers, like all across the board and meet with them once a week and we get to talk about professional, personal development, um, how to have hard conversations if they're horse trainers, how to deal with a difficult client horse. I mean, I just love it because it's a full spectrum of, of all the work that I do here. Yeah. And it ties and, together all the things that you've been working on for, you know, the last, I don't know, 20 years. Yeah. 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 And, and I've, um, since the fall gotten a handful of TBI clients. Oh, wow. And I get to grow, we get to grow together through this. Yeah. And if I that, that peer, is mentorship. Peer mentorship is so freaking important. I think yeah. that peer mentorship is one of the things that, I mean, obviously it's around, it's not like that's a novel thing, but it's vastly underutilized. Yes. In my opinion, because there's something that comes out of the relationship between people who have a shared lived experience that you cannot have if you haven't been there. It just, it's just true. Like I could not have a, say, uh, you know, conversation with somebody who's just been through labor. Like mm -hmm. I haven't been through labor. I don't understand what that experience is all about. I can think about it. I can have empathy and I can imagine it, but that's not the same as two women who are like, Hey, this is what happened. Yeah. So yeah, I think peer mentorship is really important. Yeah. And I, um, it, it the remote part allows for me to connect with communities across the board, veteran communities. Um, I work with a horse trainer in South Dakota, someone in Florida, Texas, like it's so cool um, what we're able to do remote, remote wise. And even, you know, I have a little Pivo camera that follows me while I ride so that on some of these calls, we're riding together. I have an earbud in. She has an earbud in where she hears me and we're watching each other. And mm -hmm. it's like in the same arena, but she doesn't have to deal with negative 20 degree temps like I do. 
<laughs> that's amazing though. There's yeah. been some really interesting technology that's come out like that, that I've seen with some of the friends that I have that do training where, you know, it used to be, you'd be in the middle of the arena and your trainer would be shouting at you from the sidelines and you'd right. be like, what? Yeah. Which diagonal? What? <laughs> you know, and, and like, thank God it's not like that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And um, then they do offer, um, Spring and summer, I will be offering weekends, and I call it Warrior Medicine Weekends with me and my horses and plant medicine. Mm, that is exciting. And I yeah. I almost feel like we need to have another episode in the not-too-distant future talking about feminine warrior energy and what that's all about because you and yeah. I have that in common. We have the Enneagram 8s. Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. Um, But it's a big, it's a big subject. So I'm not going to delve into it now. I also would love in the future to talk to you about the journey to like really confronting. And I I don't mean just you as you, Savannah, but like Mm -hmm. one of the things I talk about a lot is making fear your friend and what the benefit of fear is and how you move through fear and how important it is to do that. Because I just wrote about this today about one of the things that horses have taught me is that anxiety, it it expands or contracts depending on exposure. And Mm -hmm. so people have this idea that if they shelter themselves from things that are scary or triggering, that they will somehow feel safe. But in fact, that's not what happens. You begin to feel more and more unsafe because more and more things are scary and unsettling. And so it's like the whole idea of having such a drastic experience and now being back riding is a huge journey about dealing with your fear. And I, I want to talk about that, but I feel like it would be too long to get into, but do you have any quick thoughts on that? When I got back on the horse, I knew, I knew two things. And of course it was, you know, my horse that I had the accident on, he is retired because of his neuro, his neuro symptoms from his disease. Um, I got on my five-year-old horse, still young. Sparkles. Sparkles. Such a good looking horse. He is. But I knew he was going to take care of me. So I knew what horse. I knew my first ride I couldn't do on the ranch where the accident happened. And I also knew I needed to have a job to do. Mm -hmm. So my first ride, two months two weeks after my brain surgery, we went to a ranch uh, about 45 minutes from us and the sweet old cowboy named Ted needed to move his herd of 300 cattle off of the mountain (laughs) before the first snow in the fall. So it's a fall moving horses off of the mountain to back to his ranch. And it was me and my two assistants and him and his wife. And I did deal with quite a bit of fear in those first moments of getting back on the horse because the last time I had, I had almost died. My body remembered. Right. But I had to also work through, okay, you're safe. Your heart is back. Like, I had been so deep in my recovery. That's the longest I had been without riding for years that I had forgotten where my heart was, which was in the saddle on my horses. So I was able to feel my heart come back. Hmm. And 
what's even better about this story is Sparkles, he's five. My my brain sur you know, my neurosurgeons were pretty adamant. Savannah, don't <laughs> trot. For the love of God, don't go faster than a walk. Your brain jolting this soon is not good. And my assistants knew that too. Well, when cattle start to run, the right. horses have to run. keep up with them. Right. So here I am trotting and I was holding back sparkles. It was the first time I'd ever held him back from cows. And he was getting so pissed off at me that he started bucking. And my assistant, <laughs> Sam screamed because <laughs> she was like, Oh God, here we are again. Like Savannah's coming off and, we're going to have to go back into the neurosurgeon and billings, but no, um, I was glad to find out that I was still sticky. I still stayed on him while he was throwing his temper tantrum bucking because I was holding him back, trying to say, we can't trot sparkles. My brain can't. The neurosurgeon said, don't. Um, and I had to get him under control, but yeah, my heart jumped out of my chest when I was like, Oh God. I don't, the surgeons didn't say anything about bucking. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm just imagining I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, and again, non-horse people might not get this, but I'm like, I imagine you spent a lot of time in two point during that whole situation. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, like you can trot as long as I'm not trotting with you. Yeah. Yep. So for people who don't know, two point is when you're slightly out of the saddle so that you're not necessarily following the motion of the horse with your body. Right. So, um, yeah, but all's well, and you were able to move through that. Yeah, and I, my first ride back, I wasn't a great deal of pain for about a week after that. I bet. Um, but it was like three hours, and I just, we had a job to do. I had my two assistants with me. I was on my best horse, and because I had to go through that entire physical, in the saddle, um getting your emotions back into connection with the horse. If I hadn't gone through that, I could have pushed this out another, I could have pushed it out a year, like how my surgeons really wanted me to wait. They wanted me to wait a year before well, getting I, back on. I think the really key part of that whole story that I'm hearing is like, there wasn't going to be a better situation to do it in. There's a right. point where it's like fish or cut bait. Like you yep. have to decide what is my life moving forward going to look like. Yep. And it wasn't, there wasn't going to be a time when it was going to be better, safer, you know, like that was. Yep. As, yeah. So I, I, I love that story. I think it's, and, and Sparkles has turned out to be not a replacement for Gus because clearly, you know, you're hard yeah. horse, but like he's turned out to be a great partner. Yeah. Through all of this. Which, yeah, that's kind of amazing too. And just as a, as just as a baby still. Yeah. He's still very young. I love it. I love sparkles. Me too. <laughs> um, so Secrets from the Silo, that is coming out possibly this spring, but we don't have a date yet. Is that accurate? We're shooting for end of April. Okay. Yeah. And when people want to find out more about you and your offerings and keep up with like when you do the book release and all the things that you're planning, um, where can they find you? I mean, my only social media that I have is Instagram um, at, and it's at the velvet spur is my handle. Mm -hmm. And I post all of my, my programs 
um, the book, the business, the ranch is SS Stables underscore Bozeman, I believe. Mm-hmm. Do you post on there pretty regularly or is it mostly people should just follow your personal or both? I would say follow both, but my, my programs, um, because I have a greater reach on my personal, my programs, I, I post on my personal one. Okay. Yeah. And then you have a website. Is that something yep. that people can go check out? Do you update it for programs or is that really something that's more Instagram specific? It's more Instagram specific. I, I'm still, because I'm still a one man show, <laughs> my, Dude, I hear you. <laughs> my lag on updating websites, especially with a brain injury has been uh, pretty I'm just, slow. Like, <laughs> I'm telling you, this is completely just a side note, but like starting a business and obviously I'm in grad school at the same time, which I don't recommend doing that. Those aren't two things you should do at the same time. But like <laughs> I I sit there and I I have my lists because like you, I'm very systematic and I love lists and I love, you know, my post-it notes and whatever. But I'm like, I have been thinking about, oh, I need to fix my website. I need to fix this specific thing on my website because I have ads coming out and I have promotional things happening and I still haven't gotten there. Yeah. And now I'm to the point where I'm just like, every part of me does not want to do that. Yeah. And I'm like, when do I get successful enough that I can hire someone else to do this for me? Because when you are a startup and you're a one woman show, it's like you wear every freaking hat and it's, it's unbelievably hard. So kudos yeah. to you for keeping this going. And I have Thank a you. lot of faith that it's going to do amazing things. And I hope that you will come back at some point in the future and we can talk more about your plant medicine warrior weekends, because I'm really the, the whole warrior energy and the warrior archetype is very dear to my heart. And I think it's something that has a lot of potential in terms of healing. So I'd yeah. love to talk to you more about that in the future. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was a total pleasure, Savannah. Mm. Thank you again for being here. Yes, thank you. So now it's time for the takeaway. The takeaway is an actionable practice that you can take out in the world as you journey forward. It's something that could be, should be, hopefully will be of use to you. It's a practice. It's not something that, you know, maybe you're going to master right away, but possibly you could. It could be something that will really, even today, you could start and you'll see results from it, something that can help you on your journey. And today's takeaway is coming up. So I got so excited about the conversation with Savannah and it went on longer than any conversation I've recorded for this podcast yet. And so I wrapped it up being thoughtful about the time that we were taking out of her day, which is already very busy. And so I had to write her and ask her, what would your actionable practice be? So I wanted to go ahead and read you what she wrote to me because I think it's very on point. It speaks to me about something that I myself find is a really important part of my life to respect and to visit. And what she said is, I think my actionable practice would be to carve out time each week for play 
or, quote, unstructured time spent with zero goals or outcomes, unquote. Especially for the warrior women that have a hard time in putting down their swords for a day, just some time carved away for lightness, fun, and the joy of being human. In the summer, I typically sit by the river and watch the clouds or play in the water with the dogs or my pony sparkles. To be fully in the moment as much as possible is my actionable practice. This is something that I myself have really leaned into recently. And luckily for me, part of that play is this podcast. It is so important to allow yourself to move into a space where you don't have to be armored up all the time and you don't have to be the boss or the caretaker or the nurturer, just being. So that's the takeaway this week. And I hope that maybe over the next seven days, you'll take 10 minutes every day to just be light, to just be playful, to just romp around, be silly, and allow yourself the the restorative power of play. All right. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Hey, friends. Thank you again for joining me on A Voice of Her Own. I hope that this episode was useful, that it was inspiring, that it sparked something in you that you can take out into the world. And if you want to hear more episodes or you want to sign up for our newsletter so you never miss one being released, head on over to www.avoiceofherown.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can get all the show notes. You can uh, get all the links to everything we talked about and any promotional things that I have going on. So again, thanks for joining us and take that out into the world and be your badass self.